Hello, Graham Norton here. It was another fun Saturday we had here on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Let's have a look at what we got up to. Wed Streeting has a brand new memoir, One Boy, Two Bills and a Fry-Up, and David Walliams shared all about his new children's story collection, The World's Worst Monsters. Show chef Martha is back at the top of the tower, rustling up a delicious combination of strawberries, basil and burrata. You heard me. And as always, Maria McCurlin's rustling through your letters, so she's ready to solve your dilemmas in Graham's Guide. Morning, Maria. Morning. All good? Yes, I have to say, obviously, thank you so much, Emma, and good luck to good luck to Jack. And Jack, I've told you before, work on that backhand. It's your weakest area. Uh, you love uh, a bit of tennis. I mean, not playing it, obviously, but you like watching it, don't you? I like playing it too, but I'm not very good. I do, but I've missed it this week, Graham, because last time we spoke, since then, I have been swanning around in the south, south of France. I've been in Antibes. What? Yes, exactly, on board the Glorious Gloria, that is the name of the boot I was on. So I have to say thanks to Rachel, Pete, Kim and all the crew on Gloria. Uh, Graham, I've been living like a millionaire, I tells oh, you. My goodness, my goodness. Uh, was it kind of all rosé o'clock all the time? No, Graham, what sort of alcoholic do you think I am? <laughs> no, we did lots of lovely swimming and out on the boat into the bays and... Oh, it was gorgeous and gorgeous meals. And I tell you, I don't know how I'm going to cope now. I'm back in Hastings, frankly. I've tasted the high life, Graham. Do you know what? I'm very impressed, Maria, because your uh, social media has remained unaffected by your trip to Antibes. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. I'm glad that you follow my social media, Graham. That is pleasing to hear. No, I I think sometimes you've just got to take a break, haven't you? I mean, cut to endless photographs that come now. I'm home and bored. Yes. No, I won't. uh, New new account on threads. New account on threads. I'm here too. I'm here too. (laughs) I don't know what threads is. Have I got to join that? Are you joining that? What's going on? Well, I think for now, it's all squeaky and clean. It's lovely. It's like, you know, going somewhere, a nice new housing estate. But within seconds, it'll just be like Twitter with broken streetlights and park benches overturned and all the... Yes, the flowers good metaphor. Up. Very good yeah. metaphor. It'll become the a cesspit again as we... I think yeah. Instagram is better. Instagram is for the likes of us, perhaps. I, I think it's know. so lovely, particularly when I've got some nice pictures of Antibes. Uh, I'm, just putting, <laughs> I'm just putting some filters on them now. <laughs> if only I knew how to do filters. That sun can be very harsh on the wrinkles, you know, Graham. <laughs> Yes, when the sun's behind you, it's always kinder, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) How's your week been, please? What excitement have you got up to? Uh, What have I done? Very little. I'm working on my book. Uh, Yes. I've been doing a bit of book writing. How's that going? Do you know what? Uh, And it's very rare for me to say this. All right. I'm sort of enjoying it. I'm kind of, I'm on a bit of a roll at the moment. So, yeah, well, it's all... that's I, yeah. very pleasing. That is very pleasing. I, of course, didn't take my little Rafi, uh, the new puppy, to Antibes, because um, that would have been mad. So, um, very excitable to see. I didn't get back till one o'clock last night, hence my voice is a little bit low. But very, very excited um, for my return. So, I think he knows that I am his keeper. Oh, that's adorable. That's very nice. And uh, yeah, you actually sound, you sound fine. You don't sound like you've been 
smoking gitan all week, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> and drinking uh, Remy Martin uh, in the bars. No, let's not do the foreign accent. That's very bad to do on a Saturday morning. Yeah, because the crew will be listening and they'll be offended. They won't like it. Virgin Radio. Here's the first problem, or as I like to call it, the first world problem. Dear Graham and Maria, my friend takes a long time to respond to my texts. I can send a message in the morning and not hear back until the evening, or sometimes not at all. I have known my friend for many years and have just accepted this as part of her behaviour. In response to this, I do not send any more messages to her because of her lateness to reply. But if she texts me... I reply promptly. We've known each other for many years, but I did, for a change, text her a few days ago. (laughs) Graham, I've yet to hear back from her. I find this extremely rude and wondered if perhaps I'm overreacting. I do feel that this shows a clear lack of respect. I don't expect an instant reply back, but a reply within a couple of hours would be reasonable. I know that she's seen the messages, which makes me even more offended. What do you think? And that is from Trish in Berkshire. Well, Trish in Berkshire, you know, if you make something so important, then it's going to become important. You know, text messages, another thing to worry about. How important am I in the great scheme of things to this friend? You've known her for a long time. Send her a message saying, please, can you reply to this text immediately? I need a response right now. Or when you see her, say, why do you take so long to reply to my text? It's making me crazy. You know, maybe it's a lack of respect. Yes, you could be right. Maybe it's a status thing, making, you know, power struggle, making you wait. Maybe it's just that, you know, sometimes people receive many, many texts. Graham and I, we receive so many during then and you sort of prioritize and you go oh I'll reply to that later and then you forget and then you're busy and then something else crops up and so yes but you know I think the same day is probably reasonable but if you know that she's like this then stop texting her and just call her if you need to an, an immediate response um and just say I'm calling you if messages will be on obviously who who calls anymore and they'll and you can just say look i'm i'm calling you because you never reply to my texts and i just would like to know if you would like to do this this and the other you could trick her and say i've got tickets for Bruce springsteen or whatever <laughs> and then say oh you didn't get back to me so i went with my other friend instead i don't know you've known her for a long time just say please can you respond to my text what do you think graham well, I think there is a sort of etiquette here. I mean, I think if it's a partner, if it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, then they do need to, you know, do it a bit faster, I think. But with friends, you know, I mean, I feel bad because I, you know, you were doing this, reading out this problem, and I was thinking, well, that's me, because I'm terrible at replying to texts and emails. Um, and as you say, it's not out of badness. It's like you kind of look at it and you think, oh, I'll compose a reply, you know, now... I'm just a bit flustered. Uh, So uh, in a minute, I'll compose a reply uh, that answers all of these questions and, you know, Um, or I'll think of an excuse why I can't do the thing that they want me to do. And then I will reply. But of course, then the hours slip by and then two days have gone by and you're looking at a new text and then underneath it, you see, oh, there's that one, uh, which I didn't reply to two days ago. Um, I I like your response, Graham. I think you should respond with that when somebody sends you a text. Your text? 
text finds me rather flustered this morning. <laughs> Would you mind if I put you on the back burner temporarily until I can compose myself? <laughs> Many yes. thanks, Graham. It will take me a while to think of an excuse for not doing this. Please hold. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, so I I feel I and 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 the thing is, Trish, I do I don't know I apologise when I when I text back very late I do go sorry da da da, da. um so does she apologise I don't know I mean it's some, probably there's... not it does sound like a bit of a power trip doesn't it I mean I've you you do this Graham you're absolutely right and then I just send another one going in capital letters hello <laughs> <laughs> My text back, rude. Uh, yeah, rude. Who rude. are you? Leave yeah. me alone. New phone, who dis? Uh, I'm on threads. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> I will not be harassed. We're giving uh, threads a lot of traction this morning, let me tell you. No, no. I wouldn't it be lovely, though, if it did? I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, who cares? But, you know, Elon Musk. I mean, it would be lovely to see him crash and burn. But uh, not that I've anything against uh, Twitter, you understand, but just no, him. No. You kind of I like... do not understand how Elon Musk has run successful companies and made so much money because he has ground Twitter away into a pulp. Yes. Well, I think it was a very bad business decision day one, wasn't it? Uh, but anyway, yeah. I, but Trish, we digress Trish, from Trish, Trish in Berkshire. Yes, what we're doing send, is we're, we're, ignoring, Elon Musk we're, ignoring, text. we're ignoring her problem. That's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we get bring... back to you later, Trish, uh, yeah. or maybe tomorrow. Yeah, I'll bring the responses to this one next week. OK, Trish. <laughs> <laughs> we're making it worse, Graham. Oh, and also, Trish, again, I think sometimes it is really good... To sit back and go, wow, this bothers me so much. How lovely must my life be? Exactamundo. Yeah. So uh, there you go, Trish. This is actually a wake-up call to what a charmed, beautiful existence you live that actually the only bad thing in it is your friend uh, doesn't reply to text till tomorrow. There you go. That's it. Uh, 8722, start your text with the word virgin if you've got advice for Trish in Berkshire. Trish, I, I'd brace yourself. I don't think there's going to be a lot of sympathy. I, I, I don't know, but I, that's what I'm guessing. The response is part one. And our first letter today was from Trish in Berkshire. Now, we get all sorts of problems on the show. Uh, Trish, you know, come on. We've got to take this seriously. Trish's problem is that her friend doesn't text her back fast enough. No, there's no more to it. That That is the problem. That that That's the whole problem. Uh, she feels it's rude and disrespectful. There you go. Uh, let's see what you thought. Natalie in Leeds. I would feel very anxious if I thought my friends were expecting an instant or speedy reply. I think we all have to think of our friends in good faith and a kindness of spirit. And instead of taking offence, recognise that people will get back to you when they can. You have to respect other people's boundaries. Your friend could be busy with a whole manner of things or simply just taking time away from her phone and correspondence. Maybe take time to think about what it is that triggers you in a late reply and work on that. Yeah, Trish, work on that. Thank you, Natalie. Kerry, who's in lovely Somerset. I have a friend who does exactly this. I used to get very frustrated until I told myself I had to accept her for who she is and that she won't reply for a week at a time. If I need an urgent reply, I will send her a WhatsApp and then a text to say, look at your messages. We are now both the same with replying when we each have a moment. Life is busy. We are not all attached to our phones. Just accept it and don't take it to heart. I'm so glad lots of... Because I thought this... You know, I thought I was the awful person, but apparently everyone's awful, so it's good. Um... Ian in Preston. 
My nephew and niece know that if they want a quick reply, they text Aunt Helen, not Uncle Ian. Okay. Texts are not urgent. If you want to know something urgently, I telephone someone and speak to them. How old is Ian? All right, Grandad. Uh, failing to reply to texts isn't a power trip. It's just a sign of a chaotic life. I do it all the time. Read a text when I'm working or in the middle of something because I don't want to miss something really urgent. And I think I'll reply to that later. But then forget until days later. Nikki in Neston, you speak for us all. So essentially, Trish, uh, don't take it to heart. It's, you know, it's not about you. It's not. A, yeah, that's the bottom line. Is It's not about you. Virgin Radio. This one is a little bit thorny, so brace yourself. Okay. Dear Graham and Maria, my boyfriend and I have been together for over a decade, and although we're not keen to get married, we've always said to each other that we're life partners. Uh-oh. Since we first got together, we've been hugely into communication. Well done. And we have a monthly check-in so that we make the time to discuss how we're feeling and what's going on in our lives, which has definitely avoided some arguments in the past, exclamation mark. Here's the problem. In our last chat, my partner sat me down and said he had been thinking a lot and wants to try an open relationship. We've always been monogamous and this came as a huge shock to me. He told me to think about it and I am. A lot. But I just don't know if this is something I can do. This is clearly important to him. I understand his reasons as he's bisexual and wants to explore dating women. But I don't think this is something I could handle if he was dating another person of any gender. I don't want to restrict him and have him end up resenting me. And equally, I don't want to lose him. How can I navigate this without either of us getting hurt? And that is from James in Cardiff. Well, James in Cardiff, I think you might have to up your monthly get-togethers for your communication uh, scenarios because this is a big thing. And, you know, he's suddenly just introduced this in the last monthly check-in. And it's a lot. It is a lot. Now, you say you don't want to have him end up resenting you, but neither do you want to resent him. You also say he wants an open relationship, but you say dating another person. This isn't about dating, is it? This is just about hookups. You don't want him dating somebody. Um, I just feel, James, in Cardiff, that maybe you're just jumping in straight away to something. You could do something together with a third party. Does that appeal? I feel sort of excluding you straight away going into the I want to do this, I want to date women, I want to date other people, not date, you know, hook up with other people, is kind of very excluding for you. And so maybe could you think about maybe inviting a third person in? First, uh, don't do anything you don't want to do. This is the thing, whether you end up he ends up resenting you or one of you gets hurt, it sounds like one of you is going to get hurt anyway, agreeing or disagreeing. It sounds like he wants a little bit more play. Um, maybe things have got a little bit boring in that department. Um, I would say go and see a relationship counsellor together because a third party is very helpful in um, navigating this and find, and talking, you know, you're not talking at the person, you're talking at the therapist, say, and it's a safe place and you can both say what you really think. 
uh, because I think it's a big one to navigate on your own. And it does sound to me, James, in Cardiff, like you are very mindful of all of this and checking in with each other and you want to be life partners. But this is a bit of a blip and a bit of a bump in the road. Graham? Well, I mean, yes, I do think they should go see a counsellor because I don't know what to say to them. <laughs> because it is, it's such a thorny one because, you know, some couples do this and it works for them. You know, apparently they're they're happy. They seem to be. Um, but it, I feel the, the problem here is it's unilateral. And I think James will never be happy agreeing to this because it wasn't his idea. He was perfectly happy the way they were and he didn't want it to to kind of open up in this way. Um, I, I, and also you feel it's like a big spanner in the works, yeah, isn't it? You do feel like saying to, to James's um, boyfriend, you know, that... You know, it, it is about choices and consequences. You chose to be with me, and one of the consequences of that was you don't get to go out with women anymore because we're together. Uh, and now the rules are being changed. And I think one of the things that happens is if you agree to some changing in the rules, I think what you'll find is the rules keep changing. You know, yeah. if you put lots of safeguards in place about kind of, okay, you can only see this new person once. You can never see them more than once. Then suddenly it'll be a, oh, can you see them more than, just all of that. So it just seems like your relationship is going to become much harder work if this happens, James. That's all I'll say. So you better be prepared for that. And I think if you're not keen, it's very hard to see how this is going to work. Both of you need yeah. to think this is a good idea or it's not going to work. I, that, that's Which is my why feeling. I think a, a counsellor will help because it's two of you talking to another person about your feelings rather than to each other, which can descend into chaos if there's no sort of order involved. And this is a point in your relationship, you've been together for 10 years, where things need to be readdressed, clearly. The status quo has to be changed, whether that means you go your separate ways or one of you accommodates the other. I feel there's going to be resentment on either side, which is why, why you need to navigate it with the help of another. You yeah. have put a lot into this relationship, James, and I would say put a lot more by going, in, going to see a counsellor. And if it means that you don't stay together, that will help you to navigate how you both get out of that relationship as well by going to see a counsellor. I'm not shirking responsibility here, but this is a big problem. Yes, I also isn't it that thing where, you know, because because you, you do your monthly meetings and everything, so you kind of think, oh, let's try it for a month and then we'll come back to it. I think once you open the door to this, it's very hard to shut it again. Um, so I, it's yeah, it is tricky. I really I will be know. interested to hear what the Virgin Radio listeners have to say about this because it's kind of a bit out of my remit and possibly out of yours as well. But yes, you know, I it's feel a like the Virgin problem. listeners, the Virgin listeners, will think suggest James build a new conservatory. I think that that's really <laughs> where they'll go <laughs> and and go on a camping holiday. Yeah, put your energies, put your energies into getting a holiday villa in Portugal. There you go. That'll that'll cheer you up. <laughs> uh, have you got any advice for James in Cardiff? Eight, I mean, I, I'm, the mind boggles. I 
can't imagine what the first listeners are going to say to James. Eight of I'm excited. Two. I know. Well, I hope I can read them out. Their responses, part two. And now, uh, ooh, this is a tricky problem and a big, big response. I wonder how the Virgin listeners would respond to this, but they, yeah, you liked it. Uh, James is uh, in Cardiff and he's been with his boyfriend for over a decade. They don't want to get married or anything, but they, you know, they're life partners. That's what they've always thought. And the communication's always been key to them and they uh, chat once a month about any issues and that's really worked well for them over the, the past decade. Anyway, last catch-up, uh, boyfriend suddenly announced he wants to have an open relationship. This was a bolt from the blue from James, and he's really kind of shocked, doesn't know what to do. He understands it in a way because his boyfriend is bisexual and might want to explore things with, you know, women or men. But James is thinking, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to like this. But he understands if he says no, then that's going to lead to problems too because then the boyfriend will resent him. What did you think? Uh, Annie's in Wiltshire. I'm sorry, James, this isn't looking good. Don't compromise who you are and what you need. It might be worth speaking with the therapist to identify what has changed. Why and why now? It's great you communicate well, and sometimes there is a need for some help with blind spots. Good luck. I mean, yeah, that is interesting. Why and why now? The why now is interesting. Uh, John's in Rochester. I feel for James, as this is clearly not what he wants, but at least his partner is discussing it with him rather than doing it behind his back. Presumably, James has always known his partner was bisexual, and whilst, of course, this does not mean he needs to see other people, perhaps it was always on the cards. Maybe they need to test the situation and then see how they both feel. There is a danger of opening Pandora's box, but it looks like their relationship is at a crossroads, isn't it, though, John? Uh, David in Liverpool, I am suspicious that this came out of the blue after regular monthly talks and feel like the boyfriend may have already found somebody that he wants to do this with and just wants James to give it the go-ahead. But when you are blindsided like that, you will never be happy with the situation and surely it wouldn't have taken a monthly meeting for him to broach the subject. So where has this come from? I think James needs to find out and make a decision based on that. David, I like the way you're thinking. Yeah. Yeah, there is a mystery to this. The best thing for James to do is to think about how his partner has got to this outcome. Is it only women or other men too? Open relationships only really work when both parties want to go and have fun outside of that relationship. An open relationship is something my boyfriend and I have discussed, but are taking our time and our emotions towards the idea. There's no rush. If your boyfriend loves you, he won't put that pressure on you to say yes to an open relationship. Connecting and speaking to other couples in the LGBT plus uh, community who are in open relationships is also a good thing to do. Lived experience and establishing boundaries is key. If your boyfriend loves you and wants to stay with you, he will understand all of this and work with you to find a happy medium. It doesn't have to be a big ultimatum and dramatic. Take it slowly. Think about what is right for you and your relationship. Also, gardening is a great distraction from boyfriends. Thank you, Harry from Yorkshire. And if I never say the phrase open relationship again, I'll be quite happy. Graham Norton on Virgin Radio. Now, as the crow flies, the distance between Wapping and Westminster, not very far. But it has been an extraordinary journey for my first guest today. And he tells that story in his memoir, One Boy, Two Bills and a Fry Up. His name is Wes Streeting. Hello, Wes. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well this fine Saturday. Good. So is this, it must be strange for you as an MP to suddenly be talking about yourself. It is a bit. And I'm used to doing interviews where you have to kind of cram in facts and stats, in my case, particularly about the state of the NHS and what we would do about it. You're ready to be interrogated about 
you know, your plans and how much they'll cost and how you'll raise it and what impact it will have. And this has been a very different experience, actually far more terrifying because, you know, in politics, you're talking about issues you care about. In the case of this book, I'm talking about the lives of people that I love the most. And as you sort of alluded to with your introduction, it's a very raw, honest uh, and open account, and in some cases, painful account of not just my life and growing up in poverty and experiencing some of the hardships that I had, but talking about my parents and grandparents and their lives and some of the hardships they had. So it's definitely been a labour of love. I'm glad it's out and um, the reaction has been good. So from my perspective, my mum and dad's perspective, who are probably even more nervous than me, it's been a big sigh of relief this week that it seems to have gone well and people are reacting very well to it. And uh, I, I think it's always interesting when people choose to write a memoir like this. Was it your your cancer recovery? Was that what prompted it? Or were there other things going on in your life that you thought, all right, now is the time to to tell this? And it is a very inspiring story. Um, you know, wh- why now? Yeah, I think um, had I not gone through kidney cancer a couple of years ago, I think I would have stuck to my guns and said no. I mean, when I was approached by the publisher about writing this book, uh, I I just thought, no way. I mean, memoirs are something you normally write at the end of your political career. And I really know (laughs) this isn't a career-ending memoir. Um, (laughs) And as I said, it's very personal. Did I really want to sort of go into that at this stage? We're not supposed to show vulnerability as politicians. There's always a bit of in politics, the cynicism of sort of what's he up to? What's this book all about? Is he positioning cynically? What's going on? So I knew I'd get some of that flack. Um, And in the end, I just thought, you never know what life holds for you around the corner. And when I finish my time in politics, whenever that is, whether it's 10 years or 20 years or 30 years time, you know, I might go back to the publisher and say, okay, I want to go now. And they might say, yeah, we're not interested in you. You're old news, mate. Off you go. So... Um, yeah, it's not really a political book at all. And I thought, actually, why wait? It's 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 um there's politics in it, and there's definitely it definitely explains my values and where I come from. But I thought, you know, if there's one thing cancer taught me, it's you know, seize the day and seize opportunities where they where they confront confront you. Yeah, and it is political in a way, and, and there's kind of there's a positive and negative. Let's start with the positive. The positive I would say is uh, education. You know, and your parents weren't bad parents by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, they were busy putting food on the table. They were busy, you know, keeping you alive. Teachers were really the kind of inspirational figures in, in your life, it seems. Yeah, uh, without a great state education, um, you know, I, I always joke I might have ended up in prison like my granddad rather than parliament, although he's no longer with us and didn't live to see me elected to parliament. I can almost hear him in my head saying, yeah, but you work with more crooks than I did in parliament. (laughs) He's very cynical about politics and politicians. Um, I mean, that's how bad politics has fallen, by the way, even armed robbers look down their nose at us. Um, um, uh, Yeah. I mean, I had amazing teachers who saw my potential and backed me all the way through. uh, Even though when I was in secondary school, the school went through a period of special measures um, I still had these incredible teachers who kind of spurred me on to do well. And and that had a transformational impact on on my life because, you know, certainly when I was growing up, there was no one enough in the family I could look to as a role model of sort of having gone to university. I was the first first to go. 
And so having that support from my teachers made a transformational difference. That's absolutely true. And then I suppose on on the negative side of, of politics is, you know, we, we read a memoir like this and you sort of imagine, you know, a child growing up in, in poverty, you kind of think, oh, that was the bad old days. But at the end of the book, you're reflecting about meeting kids in schools now and actually sort of things are worse for them now than they were for you, as bad as they were for you. I genuinely think that's true. I mean, London schools are so much better than they were in the 1980s. That 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 is that's a positive development. But one of the things that really upsets me actually is kids who are growing up in back from backgrounds like mine experiencing poverty. The council estate that I wanted to escape growing up because it wasn't a nice place to live. And we had problems with things like cockroaches and fleas and the electric meter running out and all the things that come with not having um, a great quality of income or life. Kids, kids growing up in my constituency often aspire to that now rather than wanting to escape it because they don't have a council flat. They're living in temporary bed and breakfast accommodation that there's little opportunity for the teachers I describe in my book to work their magic with these kids because the kids are not just shoved from from home to home. They're shoved from school to school. Um, the social security safety net is just full of gaping holes that people fall through. And even where, you know, mums and dads are working two, three, sometimes even four jobs, they're not necessarily earning enough to make ends meet, let alone to enjoy things that I think everyone should be able to enjoy in life in terms of family days out and quality time and trips to the seaside or, you know, the, I think the things that make life worth living, I think people are finding it really tough at the moment. And, and that makes me sad because, you know, I was sort of brought up to think things can only get better and, you know, life moves on and our rights improve, our quality of life improves. And it sort of feels like we're stuck in a rut as a country at the moment. And, for kids for, from backgrounds like mine, I want to make sure they grow up having the very best start in life. And uh, I was struck by something Keir Starmer said this week, actually, about wanting to smash the class ceiling in our country. I feel very strongly there is still a class ceiling that holds kids from backgrounds like mine back. And, and you know, hopefully we'll get a chance to smash it. You mentioned Keir Starmer there. Like, what's the mood like, Wes? Because, you know, you'll have to be going something to lose the next election. So uh, is it, are you just en fait? Or are you kind of thinking, oh God, now we've got to do it? <laughs> no, I mean, look, opposition is miserable. I've been an opposition MP for eight years and it is a miserable, miserable experience because there are very limited opportunities to actually do things and change things. You tend, up, you tend to, to end up at work thinking, well, what am I going to say today rather than what can I do? Um, I, I think we're in a, a remarkable position in that if you'd told me three years ago, Labour would be in with a chance of winning the election, let alone likely to win the election, I, I wouldn't have believed you. We had our worst defeat since 1935 in 2019. And yes, I think the state of the Tories and the absolute mess of the economy, people's rising mortgages, the state of our public services... That's put wind in Labour's sails. The implosion of the SNP up in Scotland. That's put wind in Labour's sails. But the only, frankly, the only reason we've got sails on the ship is because um, Keir's changed the Labour Party and learned the lessons as to why people rejected us last time. So I think the mood is very optimistic. Um, we know things are going to be difficult. We're not. We're not going to be able to change everything overnight. And there are some promises we will probably want to make, but are unlikely to make because of the state of the economy. Um, but all of that being said, um, we, we feel 
the country needs a change, is looking for a change. And at the next election, we can go in with a manifesto and a set of promises that we know we can keep. And, and if for we you, keep those promises, we'll get a chance at a second term. And for you personally, you know, <laughs> right now, you're you're the, the shadow health minister. Um, come the day, you'll pile into, into Downing Street. It, obviously, you'd like to be on the front bench, but presumably you'd like something easier than health. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely the most difficult job, I think, in government at the moment. Apart from the, the prime minister's job, the chancellor's job, the NHS is going through objectively the worst crisis in its history and it's going to take a lot of heavy lifting to turn it around but I, I'm I'm excited by that prospect because you know I'm in politics I want to change things and um, the NHS saved my life I've got a lot of family members who are currently in the care of the NHS in one way or another I think it's one of the greatest institutions this country has ever built and I think that it will have a bright future for the next 75 years if we make the right choices. But it really is a case, I think, of an existential crisis for the NHS at the moment. So if I get the chance to be the health secretary that turns the NHS around from its worst crisis in history to make it fit for the future, and if that's the only thing I ever achieve in politics, then... You know, I, I will consider my my life very well spent. <laughs> There'll be statues of you if you do that. Um, well done, I don't know about that. <laughs> well done, West Streeting. And he solved the problem. It was great. So um, yeah, f- <laughs> fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. I like your optimism. Uh, fingers I'm crossed. I'm an eternal optimist. Uh, yeah, good for you, West Streeting. And I wondered, you know, because obviously, you know, you started as a constituent MP, and and being in your constituency and working with constituents is key to you know part of your enjoyment of the job. Is it is it more frustrating when you're get one of these bigger jobs, like when you're the shadow health secretary, where suddenly your focus is taken away from the constituency? I mean, I work really. I mean, I live in the middle of my constituency, which helps. So um, I sort of see people every day, and I, you know, I'm, I'm very much rooted here. Um, I, I work really hard to carve out that constituency time, um, but I've got to tell you, I mean. I'm probably more frustrated now as a constituency MP than I've ever been. I mean, on Friday, I had a meeting with some local head teachers where some of them were literally in tears because of the challenges they've got managing their school budgets and the and the sorts of pressures and difficulties the kids are under. I then went to a meeting with the owner of a local fish and chip shop whose electricity bill has gone up from £5,000 a quarter to just over eleven grand a quarter, and he's worried about whether he's going to be able to keep going. Um and then at my advice surgery on Friday afternoon, I a guy come to see me whose son had been beaten black and blue by a gang in the middle of his GCSEs. And and he, his dad was really frustrated because he feels he's put more work into the investigation to try and find the culprits. He's putting more work than the police. So things are pretty bad out there. And and I, I think actually the, the nice thing about being a constituency MP is being able to make a difference to people's lives locally. You can see the direct impact you make on people's lives. But I've, after eight years, I've come to the conclusion that is no substitute for having a government that makes the right choices to make all of the things that we're seeing and dealing with much easier to solve. Um, and so that for me is is why, you know, Labour's got to work so hard and, and not be remotely complacent about winning the next general election because, you know, Voting has consequences, and 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 but despite all the cynicism out there, we're not all the same, and different parties do make different choices. Um, and I think we've seen that in the last few years. 
And Wes, I don't mean to be glib at all. You know, you're talking about your constituents there and working with them. How are they about you writing a book? Are they like, oh, you've got time, what, you've got time to write a book? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> um, actually, the, the, the locally, um, people have been very, very supportive. And I wondered when I first became Shadow Health Secretary and started popping up on the telly more, would people say, you know, well, that's all very well, but are you, you know, are you still doing your work locally? I think people can see that I put the work into everything I do, whether it's, you know, being a constituency MP, being shadow health secretary or writing this book. I, I sort of give everything a hundred percent and um I'm a work course. And I think I think people can see that. And people locally are very proud because because I am a, a very local MP and someone who's lived in this area for 20 years, grew up in the East End. Lots of people in my constituency have very similar stories and backgrounds. So I think I think more than anything, people are proud. Well, it's a really inspiring story, Wes. Thank you so much for joining us. The memoir is called One Boy, Two Bills and a Fire. It's out in hardback now, but also ebook and audiobook. Uh, good luck to you, Wes, and uh, may your optimism re- remain undented. Uh, lovely to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks, Take Graham. care. Bye. Thank you. The Graham Norton Radio Show. Virgin Radio. Well, it's all been fun and games so far. Very soon we'll be hearing all about David Williams' latest kids' book, but I need some fuel first. Let's see what cool and delights Martha has in store for us today. Hello, Martha. Oh, how are you? I'm very well. All very summery here. Strawberries a go-go. We are, I believe, celebrating said fruit. We are indeed. It is Wimbledon week, so how could we not focus on the harmful strawberry? And are these, so is now the time, if you're if you're going to get, you know, British strawberries, now would be the time to get them? Yeah, now is the time. The fields are heaving. I went to a, one of those pick-your-own farms last week and there was lots and lots of strawberries. So it's kind of coming to the end of the season. I think they started early this year because, I don't know, weather. <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> that thing. Glo- global crisis. <laughs> but look, look at the strawberries. Uh, They're looking great. So get your, yeah. take your baskets down. In fact, apparently there are too many, aren't there? Like, it's, it's the, the, they're a bit worried. There's so many strawberries. They oh, don't really? quite know what to do with it. Yeah, apparently that, that's what I hear. Well, I've I, got some recipes. I've got some recipes for people if there's too many strawberries. <laughs> yeah, Martha can solve that problem. <laughs> Was it fun picking your own strawberries in any way? Or did you feel like, I'm sure I should be paid to do this? <laughs> I mean, you can definitely pick the pick the good ones. And it feels kind of exciting. You never know what you might find. <laughs> a but massive does, one. But does no one monitor you that, you know, because it's a bit rubbish if you're leaving strawberries behind and stuff if you're not doing a very good job you know i mean i feel like i was there kind of at the end of the season so the ones that look big are like oh that's a big one but i'm guessing they're the ones that two weeks ago people left thinking well, that's a bit that's a bit miniature okay okay <laughs> fine oh, you got your strawberries uh, so uh, now today because people obviously think of strawberries uh, just sweet but today we're doing a, a savory strawberry yes recipe. We are. We're taking strawberries and cream and giving it a bit of a savoury spin, making it into a little salad. So this is a strawberry basil and burrata salad with green peppercorns and croutons. Get out of town. I know. Quite exciting. Wowza. Uh, and uh, so <laughs> this sounds, so presumably this is quite easy. You just take the ingredients and put it together. It is nice and easy. We're making our own croutons, but we're not making the bread to make the croutons from. So, you know, we're, we're in that middle, we're in that middle area of, of ease. <gasps> yeah. Oh, there's nothing nicer than a nice. I mean, I, and actually, you really can tell when someone's made their own croutons. There is a difference, isn't there? Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially if you've used good olive oil. And this is they're like ciabatta rolls that I've made into the croutons. They've got lovely little air pockets and they've got all these lovely crispy bits. 
Okay. And is there any tip for storing strawberries? Because I always feel like I buy strawberries and then by the time I get to them, it's just muck in a plastic dish. Oh, I know. I mean, I feel like I usually wash them after I've bought them, dry them, because you want to make sure that it's the moisture which kind of gets to them. Keep Uh them in the very cool part of your fridge. If you've got a fridge that kind of varies in temperature, don't put them in the warm bit, put them in the coldest part. Um, And I kind of try and spread them out a little bit as well. Don't kind of stack them all on top of each other or they start to kind of (laughs) sink down in their in their punnets. You join me chatting to Martha Collison, show chef Martha, and she is about to explain how we're going to make strawberry basil and burrata with green peppercorn and croutons. Go, your time starts now. <laughs> I'll see how quickly I can I can blast through the recipe. So, we're starting with the strawberries. You want to take a big punnet of juicy ripe strawberries. You can get such good number one ones in Waitress at the moment. They're so they're so good. That's what I've used in this dish actually. So we're taking four hundred grams of strawberries, hulling them, cutting them into halves or quarters depending on their size and stick them in a bowl. And then we're making this dressing for them and we're going to let it sit in the dressing for an hour just so it starts to absorb and it, the flavours can all meld together. So in the dressing, we've got a shallot, which has been finely chopped, half a teaspoon of caster sugar, some sea salt, some lemon juice, and then the star of the show here is the green peppercorns. So we're taking green peppercorns, you want to crush them as finely as you can and then sprinkle that over the strawberries. People often do black pepper and strawberries, but it works so well because it kind of slightly neutralises those tart flavours that you can get in strawberries and just really brings out the sweetness but balances it all together so toss it in that dressing with a little bit of olive oil set that to one side whilst we do our croutons okay so for croutons we're taking two ciabatta rolls tearing them up into little bite-sized chunks stick them into an oven dish and drizzle with more olive oil and some salt and then they go into the oven for about eight to ten minutes till they're nice and crisp and then we let them cool down and then it's all a job of assembly. So we're taking some fresh basil, slicing that up. This is such a good salad because it's a combination of th- really aromatic things like basil and peppercorns with strawberries, which have a natural fragrance as well. So it smells like summer. So we're adding the basil to our strawberries, tipping them well onto a plate, scatter over your croutons, and then we take our creamy burrata, delicately put that on the plate, drizzle with a bit more olive oil, season the whole thing, and then tear it open and get everyone to dive in. Ooh, so is the idea, like, when with the burrata, do you rip that open and then kind of put, put strawberries on forks and rip them through the burrata? Is that, the, is that the, the deal? I think that's the done thing, yeah. Take a crouton and a strawberry, dip it in. It would be a really good starter, I think, if you were having a, a, posh, a posh dinner party or a barbecue where you wanted to impress at the beginning. This would make a really good starter. Oh, yes, this could make up for whatever's coming next, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone like, wow, that meal started really well. <laughs> well, wow, and then remember the burnt bit? Um, and is this a kind of a, is this a, a shock to the taste buds that it's going to be, ooh, you know what I mean? In the, It looks like one thing but tastes like another because you, we're so used to strawberries being a dessert. Absolutely. You look at it and you think, ooh, <laughs> did you run out of tomatoes? But um, <laughs> it actually works really well. If you think how sweet a tomato is, it, we never do sweet things with tomatoes, but you technically could because they're so sweet when they're ripe and in their, in their prime. So we're just taking something else, something similar. Salads happen with melon all the time. So yes. let's add fruit to salad. Come on. Let's do it. 2023. Bit of mango. Uh, tomorrow we're we're getting more strawberries, I believe. We are more strawberry focus. It's a whole weekend of strawberries. Graham Norton on Virgin Radio. Over the last fifteen years, my next guest has carved out a career as the most successful children's author we've ever known. And part of his domination of the children's charts has been the world's worst series. He now brings us number seven in that series, the world's worst monsters. His name is David Williams, and he joins us now. Hello, David. Hello, good afternoon, Graham. Thanks so much for having me on the show. 
Well, no, God, uh, thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, so, The World's Worst Monsters. So, this is a gorgeous book because it's kind of, a, it's, yes, you've invented stories, but it's also a kind of introduction to all these kind of uh, sort of classic monsters that we've all yeah. known. The monsters we grew up with, you know, like Frankenstein, like uh, Dracula. Um, there's even a sort of creature from the Black Lagoon. But it's 10 stories, really with just an emphasis on humour. Because I go into schools sometimes, and um, sometimes the schools are quite rough. I've been once to one where, like, a fight broke out during my talk. I mean, it must have been a very <laughs> bad thing. And I was thinking, you know, what? I are, there's kids who like to read. And there's kids who are reluctant readers. And I always think this, I want to write books for kids who are reluctant readers. And these are, I grew up on the Beano. That's what got me into, into reading. And so I wanted a book that was really funny. I write a book that was really funny, really visual, uh, you know, really silly humor, a bit surreal, and maybe a little bit scary at times. And just something that would really entertain children. So yeah, the World's Worst series has been really good for that. This, it's sort of halfway between, um, you know, a comic and a book. And uh, this one was great because I could really let my imagination run right because we're in a sort of in a magic, surreal world. And talking about that kind of luring people into reading, one of the things I noticed was that the way it's written, like as in visually on the page, the way various words are picked out and different fonts are used and all that sort of stuff. How involved are you in that or is that just a genius design team? Um, well, it is a genius design team, but that is how I wanted things because I say to them, I don't want any pages where nothing is happening other than text. Because I know what it's like, you know, having been a kid, you flick through a book and if it doesn't have illustrations and it's just text, 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 so, you know, often it puts you off because you think, oh, you know, where are the rewards? And so I want there to be something funny, something silly, something surreal on every single page. I, I mean, I did. did have driven the illustrators mad by saying, can I have a picture on every single page? Because <laughs> they're contracted to do like 25 and then they end up doing 525. But but yeah, I just I just want the books to be as accessible as possible. And uh and yeah, to encourage kids to read. You know, parents out there, they do struggle um to get kids to read and especially boys. And so if there's something they'll sit down and read for pleasure then um, that's a great thing. There's all the books, you know, brilliant books that we're sort of, you know, we're, we're introduced to in school. But there's another thing just to read a book for pleasure. Like yeah. my mum reads your books. Well, yeah, thank you very much. And while drinking it. your wine. <laughs> while eating food from Waitrose. <laughs> She's so While on watching brand. you on television <laughs> and listening to the radio at the same time. We love her. We love her. Thank you very much. Um, the the monsters, because, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we know as adults, we know these monsters, but you're a dad. Like, did your son, was your son aware of all these monsters? Or are you actually introducing these concepts of vampires and the Loch Ness monsters and things to two kids? I think maybe some kids don't know them all, but it's uh, we had a great book actually that we were reading when he was uh, smaller because he's ten now, which was called the A to Z of Monsters and had all these monsters in it. Um, it's the kind of thing you learn about some of them, don't you? There are some like the creature from the Black Lagoon is definitely a kind of B movie, isn't it, from the fifties? Yeah, and not wildly known. But at the start of the book, I introduce the reader to all these different monsters because I'm doing a kind of spin on all these stories, you know, so it's not exactly Dracula. It's not exactly Frankenstein, you know, Frankenstein becomes Frank and Teddy, you know? Um, and so, and the Loch Ness monster, I have a spin on that as well. Um, but I, 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 uh, 
Yeah, I don't think kids necessarily know them all, but it's the sort of thing they're interested in, isn't it? Monsters. Because when you're a kid, you quite like being scared, you know, within certain safe parameters. Yes. You know, like being chased around the sofa or something by a family member um, or, <laughs> you know, watching Doctor Who or whatever it is. And so I wanted really to sort of tap into that. But it's, it's you know, it's a pleasure. I, I love, I love working. I love writing. Um, and the amazing thing is that response you get from the, the the parent who comes up to you in the park or something and says, couldn't get my my child to read until they read your books. And then they say, and they only read your books. And then I start to feel bad. <laughs> some other really good books out there. I think maybe she read some other books. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, this whole thing took me by surprise. You're right, it's 15 years, but you know, God, I'd never have guessed it would be like this. And in your introduction, you were wrong because you were forgetting about J.K. Rowling. No, no, no. Apparently you, you have dominated the charts more than her. That's, that's what I read, that you had well, 70, 78 weeks at number one in the overall book charts and 229 weeks at the children's charts, and no other children writer has achieved this, unless they're not calling J.K. Rowling a children's writer. I don't know. No. I don't know. I think, would you mind just following me around for a couple of days and spreading <laughs> out some some of these facts to people? Because if I say it, it comes over as a bit arrogant. <laughs> but, but I, think, I think Graham Norton, he's just over there. He's got a lot of these statistics. You may yeah. be interested. So don't contradict me. No, <laughs> Just no, let me. No, I don't know. I mean, it's I was, nice those things, but you know, it all becomes meaningful when someone says something that the book meant something to them. Yeah. You know, like I was in the Lego store with my son, and a trans person came up and said, Oh, your book, The Boy in the Dress, which is the first book I ever wrote, really helped me, you know, come to terms with my identity. And I was like, You know, and I hadn't. I hadn't figured, you know, it would have that kind of impact. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I was really, really touched that uh, that they took the time to say that to me. So it's, 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 you know, it's lovely when you're told, oh, you've sailed X many books in China or whatever it is. But when it comes back to the person yeah. and the fact that something's resonated with them and perhaps it's made them change the way they think or feel a little bit, then your job is done. And also that someone could have read that book 15 years ago. So, you know, know. They're, well, they're a fully grown adult now. Yeah, I'm getting adults coming up to me. Yeah. Oh, I, used to read your, I used to read your books when I was little. <laughs> Gangster Gran and all that, innit? Ain't it? Like, how old am I? <laughs> uh, you mentioned the boy in the dress, uh, David. So the musical of that at Stratford, part of the RSC, big success, oh. great reviews and everything. And I thought, oh, that'll come to London. Is it going to happen? Is it going to uh, come back? It was meant to go sort of pretty much immediately into the West End, but then COVID happened. But we just had a meeting on Friday and it will be happening soon. <gasps> so it will tour and come into London. Yeah, I, I've never been prouder than than watching that show because obviously it was mostly other people's hard work that made it great. Robbie Williams and Guy Chambers wrote the songs, um, for example. And uh, the RSC obviously did it incredibly well. Um, and... The night when I sat there and watched the first night, it was, it's weird. I was in the middle of the theatre and it's like looking at your own dreams come alive. Because obviously at one stage, this was just some thoughts in my head. And as soon as the uh, the lights went down for the end of the show, like everyone was on their feet. And it was one of the most moving experiences. I mean, my son being born, you know, that trumps it. But... <laughs> It, you know, professionally, it was the kind of the biggest thrill, just feeling the buzz of everyone in there and just knowing that, we, you know, we'd all created something really special was joyous. And it is a lovely, lovely show. So I can't wait to revisit it and, uh, and you know, and it, seeing it on the stage again. Yeah. And presumably it must be very moving going on the Gangster Granny ride at Alton Towers also. 
That's moving in a different way, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> You're just physically moving. Well, it was quite surreal as well. I don't know what happened to you, Park Ride. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was like, oh, the Alton Towers, for sure. I've got my own, mer- I've got my own merch, Graham. <gasps> merch shop. Oh, love. Shame is just your wine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, my wine pales into comparison with oh, a, yeah, a, I a, mean, a, a theme park ride. Okay, uh, yeah, it, okay, you amazing. win. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, you know, again, all these things are unexpected, and I think it's always that thing. I, I imagine you've had it in your career too, where you just have to remember to pinch yourself when good things happen. Because, well, we 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 know. I mean, we used to cross paths at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival because your show was on at sort of ten o'clock at night or something like that. And just before- like, you were, yeah, you were on right after me. Yeah, you and Matt we were on. Were on. Midnight one year and I think we edged a bit earlier but it's like we were entertaining 100 people in a room and we were really happy with that and then you know all these great things happen and it's just always important to pinch yourself and go wow you know I never thought I'd meet that person I never thought I'd have that success you know that kind of thing and the writing you you know it's 15 years now have you now been a writer kind of longer than you were in something like Little Britain or Rock Profiles or anything is this your your longest yes it is but I I started off writing I wrote for Ant and Deck when I was about 21 22 because they had a children's TV show so that was like 30 hang on yeah 30 years ago and uh, so I've been writing all this time but only writing books for the last 15 years yeah so it's, it's the biggest stretch of time I've ever done one thing in my life. It's even longer than my marriage. I mean, it's 15 years. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. But you know, the good, the best thing is I love doing it. And then the success is the sort of cherry on top because and- obviously, if you go to all the trouble of writing a book. You, you do hope someone somewhere might read it. And boy, do they. I mean, it's crazy, the the amount of books you've sold. It's, what is it, 53 million and counting. That's just this morning. Yeah, well, this show can work wonders. <laughs> yeah, we double that by lunchtime. Yeah, the world's worst monsters. I mean, it's it's, it's, gone, it's gone mad now, gone mad. Um, and very quickly, you and Matt, I, are you working together again? Are, we we hear rumours. That's happening, is it? We are, yeah, we're writing. But we're sort of, you know, we're taking our time. He's actually doing Gladiator 2 at the moment. Of course. Because um, uh, I was in Malta as well doing something, and he's he's hanging out with that very handsome actor, Paul Mescal. Oh, and, yes. uh, you know, <laughs> like the most handsome man in the world. And Matt's in that, and he showed me some pictures. looks amazing. So when he's back from being in a Ridley Scott film, which I've never been in, um, he, we, yeah, we're going to get back to writing. So yeah, we're just writing, creating characters. We've got a situation. We've got lots of characters and situations we think are funny. But, you know, we want to do it in our own time. You know, we don't want to rush and, uh, you know, we want to get it right and we want to create something really special. And also you're both really busy. So um, there you go. Uh, yeah, I'm probably I'm probably a bit busier. But yeah, uh, yeah. No, yeah. We're, we're both <laughs> we're both busy and it's putting our schedules together. But we have been hanging out, working together and it's been really fun. And the best thing, you know, as you, as you all know, is like it's making each other laugh, you know, when you're writing in a room together. That that is the pleasure, and also I sit there with the best sort of seat in the house. I watch Matt Lucas, you know, create characters and do voices in front of your eyes. It's like a magic trick because he's so brilliant at it. So it's a very happy time for us to be working together, Grand. Yeah. Well, we're all looking forward to seeing the two of you and what you come up with together. But right now, people can enjoy the world's worst monsters. It is out in shops now. It is by David Williams. David Williams, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure thank you so as much always. Having me. And thanks to everyone on the team. It's been amazing being on this morning. So thank all you. All right. Go enjoy your weekend. Take care, David. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 
so much for listening. You can catch me every Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 on Virgin Radio. Follow us at Virgin Radio UK on all our socials to keep up to date on all our goings on. And make sure you check out our YouTube channel too, which you can find by searching Virgin Radio UK. Until next time. Radio.